Hello. Last time on Forward Vision, I talked with Yasha Munk about his book, The Identity Trap. We explored what he saw as the weaknesses and dangers of radical critical theory, a set of ideas that's become very influential, not just on the left and among the young, but also in the field of EDI, equality, diversity and inclusion. This week, I'll be talking to a leadership advisor, consultant, author and expert on EDI, someone who might, I suspect, see Yasha's concerns as overstated or perhaps guilty of failing to see the benefits of a critical perspective. But most of all, my guest today wants us to see the pursuit of inclusion as something we should see as an opportunity, an opportunity to make our organisations, our societies, and indeed even ourselves, better. Bored of the same Big Ideas podcasts that teach you nothing? Sick of self-appointed leadership gurus who peddle the same tired old tropes? Want to really get under the skin of some fresh thinking? Then you've come to the right place. This is Forward Vision, the podcast presented by Matthew Taylor and brought to you by the Forward Institute. So I'm delighted to be joined by Susie Levy, who's the author of Mind the Inclusion Gap, How Allies Can Bridge the Divide Between Talking Diversity and Taking Action. Welcome, Susie. Great to be here. So first question, obvious one. There are a lot of books around in this kind of general space from a whole number of different kind of perspectives. Why did you want to write Mind the Inclusion Gap? What were you trying to achieve? Well, I was really interested in how do you get people who care a lot, who give a damn, to be a bit more comfortable, a bit more confident, and a lot more active. And I really wrote the book for those individuals to help them on their journey. And similarly, how do you get people who are really active for one group, who really care a lot and do a lot for potentially the group they're part of, or somebody they love is in that, quote, diverse group, but they don't do very much outside of that. So it was really to move those who care from a passive to an active position. Well, that's interesting. So would you not recommend the book to people who, as it were, are sceptical around diversity? Because actually the first third of the book is very much about making the argument for inclusion. I meet a lot of people who are skeptical, but I don't meet that many people who are deeply negative or anti to the entire inclusion agenda, in particular when it's done well. So when we look at inclusion and diversity in its widest possible guise, and we look at all the change that we'd like to see in society, there's really nobody who's left behind. So did I write it for the skeptical? Of course. I think there's a skeptical in all of us. I, I was one of the great skeptics. <laughs> in American terms, it took me a long time to, quote, drink the Kool-Aid around inclusion and diversity. And I think I'm better for it, for having had those moments of going, why should we focus on this? Why does it matter? So you'll probably hear or heard as you read the book, my skeptic's voice and the type of questions that I put in the book are there because those were the type of questions that I had as I went on my own learning journey. Was there a moment for you, Susie, was there a moment you could remember when you started to feel much more connected, enthusiastic, energized by this agenda? I'm not sure I would describe it in exactly those terms. I think there are many emotions I, I have around inclusion and diversity, and obviously I've made it a, a large part of my career. But 
I started out my first interaction with this thing called diversity was in the late 90s when I just joined the workforce and I got invited into a women's networking event. And I remember sitting there in the audience and it was at a particular woman's house and she was standing in front of me with this beautiful mansion and a cashmere coat. <laughs> and I owed 100,000 in student loans. I didn't have a boyfriend, wasn't sure I wanted children. And she was talking to me about how I was going to have and navigate the world with, you know, having a nanny when I had children. And I was thinking, we are women and we both have breasts, but our lived experience is so different. And so I found it super off-putting. That was my first emotion was diversity is irrelevant. But when I did come back in and it became part of what I do, it was actually the data that really got me hooked, Matthew. And it was a bit of a shock because I hadn't really noticed just how homogenous we were. And when I was asked to lead the inclusion agenda for the firm that I work for, when I looked at the data, I realized all of a sudden we were all white. And that shouldn't come as a shock, but it did, because as a white person, I wasn't looking around noticing race, if you will. And it was only when I began to compare us to the census, and this is back in 2006, 2007, I was really surprised. So I've had many emotions, including <laughs> not enjoying it, <laughs> shock, and then a lot of humility along the way and a lot of joy. So you said that, in a sense, this book is targeted towards people who who want to be allies, to take them on a kind of journey. And one of the critical concepts in the book, a point that you make in a number of points, is that inclusion is not just about being nice, which I, when I read that, I think, oh, that's a pity. I wish everything was just about being nice, really. <laughs> but expand a little bit on why you thought it was important to say that inclusion isn't just about being nice. Well, I think, first of all, I don't believe we should throw away our sense of niceness. I think it's an and rather than an or, if you will, to use that turn of phrase. One of the challenges I find is I meet a lot of really good people who mean well, who are very nice, who don't do very much to change the status quo. And often they only get engaged in the subject when it matters to them because they're going to benefit from it. It's the sort of age-old chairman and CEO has an, a, a reckoning when he has a daughter and realizes that she's not going to have all of these benefits perhaps that he had had. And unfortunately, that sort of way into inclusion is, well, it's self-interested, right? And so the nice bit is I get involved when it's related to me or the nice bit is, oh, I really don't want people to argue this feels very affronting because there are some shouty things happening at the moment. But I think those shouty things in, in the EDI space, if you will, are around the periphery. So what I wanted to do was speak to the nice person who was relying on their sense of being good to share some of my own lessons because I was that nice person. I did rely on being just a good human being. And when I realized and had my first real awakening around what inclusion was, I was quite shocked, really shocked actually, because the first moment where I started to realize that nice and inclusive weren't the same was after having been brought into a room with my LGBT network, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender network. Again, this was in the 2006, 2007 timeframe. I had been in an authentic gay leadership course as a, an executive sponsor. And over the course of two days, as I listened to 15 individuals tell their story of coming out over and over and over and over again, I just had this epiphany that 
actually coming out wasn't the time that you told your mom and dad. It wasn't a day in the past and forevermore you were, you were yourself. Coming out was this every moment in the future where you were safe enough, psychologically safe enough, physically safe enough, that you could be you. And I, as a heterosexual person who had led many teams at that point in my career, had never made it easier for any of my gay colleagues to be themselves. I'd never done a single thing. I'd been really nice, for sure. But that moment was sort of my, ah, whoa, there's something more here. And I've continued on that journey ever since. And I wanted to take the reader through those moments in my career, because I don't think many people get a chance to do this level of work at the level of detail. And unfortunately, it requires a level of knowledge and detail to move beyond the niceness and have a bit more sophistication and skill. Now, that's interesting. That, And it's just a point that you make and a point that you make powerfully in the book. And indeed, it's a, a reason for reading the book is that sense that you need that knowledge, you need that skill. But yet, diversity is a project, inclusion, I should say, is a project that we want everybody to get involved in, including people who may not have the time to educate themselves. They've got other things in their lives. Let's explore that a bit. Do you think that, you know, we should be saying to all the people that we work with, if you really want to be inclusive, you need to, you know, there are some books you need to read. There's some conversations you need to have. Is there a danger that makes it feel like quite a high bar for people? Well, to be honest, I think the bar should be high and the bar should be high for humanity on many subjects, not just inclusion. We live in a world that is incredibly diverse. Diversity is difference. And when we look at the totality of it, whether we're talking the protected characteristics, these very clear areas of diversity where we've had discrimination over decades, at least possibly centuries in some instances, you do need a level of knowledge or you won't really know what to do. But I don't think the expectation around being inclusive is going to go away. It's a little bit like us living in a global world and going back to believing that we can operate in a microcosm without paying attention to what's happening out there, either as a country trying to be an island or as a company. Even if you have a small business, having some level of understanding of what's happening in and around you, I think, is really important. And the diversity in our society globally, and then again in England, and you get even more centrally to where I live in London, is enormous. And I just don't think you can operate without some level of skill in this space. Some people would call it a fad. In fact, somebody, I was at a lunch today where... <laughs> Someone counseled a person at that meeting that their institution was 900 years old and equality was just a fad. It would be gone and the institution would still be there. And they were using it to justify the fact that women didn't have the same level of opportunity or rights within this very old British institution. I don't think it is a fad and I don't think it will be going away. So part of this is investing in, in a skill set which sets you up for the future. Well, that's really interesting what you said and I, I want to come back to that. The, the comment that was made over your lunch. I'm interested as to whether or not that's a comment that reflects something that's happening. But we'll come to that in a second because I want to explore, I don't know, you might think this is unfair, Susie, but I felt there was a, almost a slight paradox in the book, which was that you you argued and very convincingly, and you've just done so again, that inclusion is not just about being nice. But then in the book, you take some of the deep conflicts that some people see as inherently polarising 
in the debate around equality between kind of radical, critical perspectives and a kind of more liberal universalism or between the rights of trans people and the rights of women. And your view seems to be that these are problems that we can overcome as long as we focus on what we're trying to achieve and treat each other with respect. Now, I want to believe that's true, but I listened to some of the people on different sides of this debate. And as I said at the beginning, I spoke to Yasha Munkin in the last edition of this. I think they would say it probably can't be overcome as easily, that there are pretty deep divides here. What's your perspective on that? Well, I wouldn't pretend that there aren't deep divides, right? And our society is hugely polarised. And I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is who wins by stoking polarisation? Maybe one for another podcast moment. But generally speaking, humans don't want conflict. Some people enjoy a really good argument or they like a combative career. But generally speaking, individuals and institutions don't want polarization. They don't want divisiveness. And we, as a society, don't look at ways to attack and break each other up. I think in any debate, and if you take trans women versus women, and can they both coexist, there are some pretty fundamental elements where we can both agree whether you are a trans woman or, quote, a cis woman, which means that you've never had a disconnect between sex and gender. I don't often use the word cis because I think it, it in itself can be a polarizing word. But if we remove things like bathrooms for just a moment and sports, which I'm happy to come to, ultimately, some of what trans women are doing are ripping up the rule book of femininity. And as a feminist, I can get on board with that, right? That is not a threat to me as a human being. I similarly, when I look at what trans men are doing and the need to redefine masculinity, there's some stuff that the trans community in gender unconformity are doing that will benefit us all. And actually, we probably should have challenged some of these norms quite a long time ago because they're very harmful to the vast majority of the population. So I think by pausing and finding what we do agree on, I can agree that people should exist in the forms that they exist in, particularly when they're not harming other individuals. But if we're talking about how young a child should transition and what support, mental health support looks like for a child who thinks they might be transgender, or we're talking about women in sport or the more contentious areas, then of course we're going to have people who have polarized views. But sitting down, and it's not believing the same thing, I think the fabric that you need when you have opposites, if you will, is both parties having a desire to find an outcome and a benefit and a positivity from it. Frequently when I see people who are in the shouty end of this, they're not really looking for positive benefit as an outcome. It's actually rare that I find that when I, when I encounter someone who's really stoking things. And so finding the quiet spaces and the moments where we can talk about what something that benefits all might look like. And even if we can't agree on everything, we can agree to the way in which we treat each other and the way in which we find commonality, even if we do disagree. And some of that is like the beauty of argument or the beauty of agreeing to disagree that I think at times gets lost because 
of the potential for stoking divisions like this and how well it suits political agendas, both on the left and the right. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'll give you another kind of example of this one I discussed with Yasha last time, I think, which is in a previous leadership role that I had, we brought in a consultancy to look at, to assess where we were in terms of inclusion. And in their pitch to us, and actually they, they won the work, I, I'm not sure I would have awarded it to them, but the panel I was on did. <laughs> they pitched very heavily that they were signed up to critical theory, critical race theory, critical gender theory, critical, I think, disability theory, etc. And yet they were going to undertake a survey of the organisation as to whether or not we were kind of getting things right on the EDI front. My question to them was, but the problem is if you come from a critical theory perspective, which I respect intellectually, even though I don't think it's of much value in practical terms, then you believe that any organisation in a society like ours is riven by racism and sexism and, and ableism, etc. So you you're coming at this with a predisposition to believe that any organisation in a society like this is going to be like this. And, you know, surprise, surprise, that's what their findings were to an extent. When you say, well, actually, we can sit down and we can work this out, there is a very strong perspective in this field which says, no, actually, the starting point is to understand a fundamental and profound conflict of interest, which is potentially inevitable. And actually, what we have to do is to work with that through a kind of identity politics rather than to transcend it? Well, I'm a bit of a pragmatist. So the belief that individuals, whether we call it critical theory or we agree what we see and how we move forward, I don't tend to prescribe to lots of the terms that get given to this space. In fact, I don't even use the term EDI. I don't think acronyms are helpful. I don't think some of the techniques that diversity practitioners, if you will, like myself, use are often helpful because some of them automatically put people on the back foot. So when you've already created a defensive posture from the people you're trying to work with, develop, potentially cajole, or maybe even change, it really isn't helpful. I also think it isn't helpful to pit groups against each other. The idea that for women to win, men need to lose, I think, is a false ideology. It doesn't mean that you will have the same amount of men potentially rising to the top. For example, if we were talking about the top of an organization and wanting more women in leadership. But Susie, could I just interrupt for a second? I mean, I, I get that. I'm really not trying to caricature views, but I do think critical race theory would say absolutely that for black people to advance, white people have to lose. I think that would be a core element of that view, that uh, that's a kind of critical of whiteness, white privilege, that white people do have to understand that they are going to have to let go and lose out if they're going to have create an equal society. Yes. So you're moving over to race and I was using the example of men and women, yeah, right? Okay. So in, when it comes to race, if you have more individuals of a color rising to the top, you are going to have less white people, quote, rising to the top. But I don't think rising to the top is the only version of success. So if, if I take it back to my example on sex for a moment with men and women. If you have more women at the top, you have less men, right? So in that theory, you would basically saying men are losing out because women are winning. But actually, when you look at the problem in its totality, you are reshaping what the art of possible is for a man and challenging the idea that male success is climbing to the top of the dog pile, it's earning the most money, it's consuming the most things, it's having the biggest house and the biggest car and the prettiest, quote, uh, wife or something like that. I think 
We do live in a white-centered world where power, especially in the Western world, has a proximity to whiteness. And some of the privileges that you were talking about, including white privilege, of course, those would be less if we were changing the world as it exists. But privilege isn't universal, right? So I might have white privilege, but I certainly didn't grow up with economic privilege. And one would argue that I don't have a privilege in being a woman in some instances. In other instances, I think it's a huge privilege to be a woman. So that point of view of when one group wins, another one loses, assumes a universality to it, right? That there is score one for people of color, nil to white people. And actually, we don't live in that binary of a world. And the changes that we would make if we were creating more opportunity, more economic advancement, more of all sorts of stuff, don't necessarily require a loser. That's really interesting. Now, I want to go back to the conversation you had at lunchtime. There is a backlash against inclusion. There's no question, and I think it's particularly pronounced in the United States. But, you know, normally when the United States sneezes, we catch a cold in the UK a few years later. Do you sense a backlash against the fact that, particularly in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, there was a kind of real acceleration in organisations' commitment to inclusion? But now some organisations are sort of moving in a different direction. They're distancing themselves from some of these ideas. Do you sense, first of all, because you work with a lot of organizations, do you sense that backlash? Oh, for sure. I absolutely would agree that there's a backlash towards the focus on inclusion and diversity or anything related to equality, equity, whatever we want to call it. I'm not sure it's related to George Floyd and that it can be directly tied to the increase in focus on race, which was hugely needed here in the UK, not just in the US, I might add, and needed in many countries. But I often hear people say, but oh, but the US is like this and our, our numbers are not that different when we look at it from a numeric perspective around race equality or race equity. I think ultimately the backlash comes from poorly designed programs insofar as we were making this up. <laughs> I mean, we've been working at women's equality for a while. We've been working at equality full stop for a while. But if you look at the real rise in programs around diversity, they came for the early adopters in the late 90s, a bit in the noughties, right? And in particular, you had gay marriage, brought the LGBT agenda in many countries around the world front and center. And then obviously George Floyd's murder was a racial sort of reckoning and awakening pretty much everywhere. It was a ubiquitous one. I think we constructed programs that spent a lot of time and energy in closed doors. So we put women in a room and we told men they weren't invited. We shut the door. Nobody knew what was happening in those rooms. And it's not to suggest that having private spaces for individuals with a disability or gay individuals or women or black individuals, whichever group we're talking about, is not important. That is important because it's the place where you can be yourself, you can let down your guard, you can meet like-minded others, you can feel less isolated and alone. And let's face it, lots of individuals in those categories have been isolated and alone, in particular in workplaces where they were hugely outnumbered. But it doesn't do anything to change the current situation. I mean, if women could change equality for women, we would. 
If I could change men's violence against women and girls, I would. If I could change the gender pay gap, I would. And similarly, if you're an ethnic minority, a person of color, of course you would change those things if you would. And so those programs were really, really focused on bringing minorities in a room. They got a little bit more sophisticated when they were like leadership development programs for women or leadership development for people of color or gay people or people with a disability, et cetera. But what they didn't do is bring the rest of the organization on the journey. So we lacked an understanding of where we were going, why it mattered, what it had to do either with the key things that we're focused on in society or within our organization. And it was done in sort of a secret squirrel sort of way. And that never, secrets never go down well, not in any context, Matthew, right? Like, and in this context, they certainly didn't because the people who weren't invited into the room felt that they were being talked about or they were being turned into some sort of devilish pariah. I recently wrote a post saying we need to drop the words pale, male, and still from our vernacular. And you wouldn't imagine the volume of commentary from it. And actually, it was a lot of men saying, thank you. It is racist. It is ageist. It is sexist. And yes, I might be in a position of privilege as an older white man, but it's still not okay to call me all of those things because you don't know me. So I'm not sure it's related to what happened with George Floyd's murder. I think it's much bigger than that. And I think it requires a fundamentally different approach to how we design inclusion and diversity, how we co-create, and how we stop looking at problems for diverse groups in isolation rather than looking at the macro picture. Yeah, thanks, Sis. That's really powerful. And, and just to be clear, I mean, I think the, the point I'm making is that after George Floyd's murder, it became impossible for organizations not to be doing something in this space. And that seems to me now to have, have shifted into some organizations almost taking pride in their sense of, look, you know, as you say, as the person at lunchtime said, oh, that was a fad and we've moved on. But I think, it, you know, you give a brilliant account of, of where that backlash, how that kind of festers, what it is that creates the circumstances in which that backlash can accelerate. Now, you've just referred to this, but I want to explore it a, a bit more, which is that these conversations about inclusion, about how we're doing as an organization, how we could do better, about whether people are going to have to give things up, about the fact that niceness isn't always enough, they can be difficult conversations. I've been in them and I've I've seen a lot of self-censorship, both from those who feel excluded and maybe tired, don't want to have to go through this all over again or just think they won't be listened to, but also from those who feel they might be judged for their failings for their privilege or whatever. So, and this is a very practical question, Susie, which I'm sure you've advised organizations on. How how do leaders create a safe space for everyone to authentically be themselves? Well, I mean, that is a great question, although I'm just going to put out there, I don't think everyone shows up with their whole self. It's an adage that you hear in the inclusion and diversity space, and I don't think anyone brings their entirety to any situation, let alone the workplace, but we want more, higher authenticity, right? I mean, I think the first thing is we have to recognize that those expectations I talked about earlier, which are sky high, they're sky high that you know how to talk about race, that you're able to understand gender identity and maybe some of the new-ish areas of you know gender fluid, gender non-conforming, and the difference between that and, and the elements of the gender spectrum that you would know how to have conversations about changing our society and potentially even know the right intervention. So it's not just the nomenclature and the fluency, 
that you know how to hire inclusively. You know how to iron out systemic racism or sexism in anything you do, any moment of opportunity as a leader in an organization. So I think first and foremost, how do we create more space for authenticity? We do need to keep having those forums where people can share their stories. They are hugely powerful. That's how I began my own journey was hearing the stories of other individuals and sort of being shocked out of my complacency, if you will. But right now, the inclusion agenda is deeply event and story-led. And actually, we do it in injustice when we don't look at it as a possibly the greatest social change program or change management program of over the last few decades and actually give it all of the underpinnings it would need to be successful. So you can create a much better space where people are less worried about saying the wrong thing when they've had some training, when they've actually sat down and understood A, what inclusion is, because we're setting a bar really, really high on inclusion, but I don't think most people can even define it. We can define diversity really quickly, but if I ask a room of 20 people, I'll get 19 different answers on what inclusion is. So first of all, we don't know what we're aiming for. And second of all, we don't necessarily have the skills to understand how to deploy these inclusive, you know, what are the behaviors and how do we, how do we deploy them? And what do they look like in a workplace setting? And what do they look like in a dinner table setting? So that's probably the first thing. And that training slash awareness and support systems that you need helps individuals, in my experience, have a chance to speak authentically. Now, I think you were going somewhere, which is the worry of I will say or do the wrong thing. And I will either be harmed by it, aka canceled, or the more common fear I hear is I will hurt somebody. My good intentions will be so poor in my execution that actually I will have done more harm by actually saying something. And that's probably the most common fear I find with individuals. And it's a pretty universal one. I'm worried I'm going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And I think creating spaces where people can be a bit clumsy is very, very good. I also think we also need to create spaces where we don't condone laziness. <laughs> so going back to how much reading does one have to do, just terminology, things like people of color, colored person, two very similar terms. But again, if I ask a room, who knows which one's okay, but maybe a bit clunky and which one's not okay, most people in the room will know which one's not okay. But if I ask them to say, why is it not okay? Explain to the rest of the audience why that word is not okay. Just dead silence. Maybe one in a hundred will be able to answer that. And all it takes is a Google, one Google. Now, I don't think we should be Googling everything, but if you never even tried to look it up, that's lazy. So creating space for authenticity, yes, of course, we need some spaces where people are allowed to be clumsy and we give gentle nudges to each other. But at the same time, you can't be lazy in this space. And then go, oh, I'm worried somebody's gonna call me out. And is part of that work, the work that we need to do, Susie, just about meeting people, meeting different than the people we would normally spend our time with. Many years ago, I did a, I was part of a, an inquiry into social integration, which found some quite shocking statistics about how homogenous people's social networks are. And in the biggest gap was how few, how few people who make decisions about who to employ knew anyone who was unemployed and vice versa. 
I know that for the Forward Institute, who kindly sponsor this podcast, they see that for leaders to spend time with people unlike those that they would normally spend time with is an actually important part of this process. Do you agree with that? Hugely so. Hugely so. And I think it's across the boundaries of these diversity categories that we talk about frequently, right? You are not going to have really high affinity for someone of a different racial group at work if you are not having people around your dinner table who look, act, behave differently than you, right? And racial boundaries don't get broken that often around the dinner table, in my experience, unless you choose to do that. Similarly, socioeconomic boundaries. If you're upper class, chances are the people around your dinner table will be of a similar class, same if you're middle class and same if you're lower class. We just don't break out of those boundaries. But I think some of it isn't just these classic diverse categories. I don't think we'll fix some of the problems that we face as a society unless we're breaking through public, private, and third sector. I mean, I work across all three, and I I think I know less than five people who have deep experience in the same way across public, private, and third sector. And there are all these assumptions, right? In the public sector, I hear people say, oh, those private sector people with all those big salaries. And I'm thinking, yeah, maybe CEOs and board level people, but your Sainsbury's checkout clerk or your average person working at mid-level management is not bringing home some insane salary, right? And similarly, you'll have biases towards third sector from private sector and vice versa. And actually, it's that totality of experience in seeing people who look at the problem slightly differently, they look at the solutions slightly differently, When we bring those people together, I think incredible things happen. So it's not just across your classic diversity categories, if you will. I think we need more dinner tables that are rich and vibrant with people who are a bit different than us, stretching our thinking, and then doing something with what we hear and what we feel across those moments of breaking bread. Yeah, thanks for that, Susie. And we're drawing to a close. I've got a couple more questions, and one comes off the back of what you just said. You said earlier, privilege isn't universal. And one of the things that Yasha Monkarg used in the book that we discussed on the last edition of this was that one of the problems with kind of critical theories, it says that the only identity that matters is the identity of oppression. When actually, of course, we all have multiple identities. And in a sense, intersectionality cuts both ways. You know, there's intersectionality, which is, as it were, about the multiplication of oppression. But there's also an intersectionality, which means that you might be a woman, but if you're a very successful career woman with lots of privileges, then you don't have to suffer the exclusion that you know working class people suffer, poorer people suffer, for example. And I'm kind of interested in in that because you you just given another example, which is well, you know, you might be a woman in the private sector, but it's important to understand the perspective of women who work in the public sector or the third sector. So I just want to explore this thing that identity doesn't just lie in the protected characteristics, and actually to kind of put myself into the conversation a bit, this kind of came home to me a few years ago when I found myself even, you know, as a kind of reasonably powerful white old bloke being bullied at work. And what I realised when that happened to me was that if you don't have a protected characteristic, you don't really have recourse if you're bullied at work. Because if you do suffer bullying at work and you go to a lawyer if you have a protected characteristic, they will immediately say, well, great, we've got a case here because that case can be made in terms of 
the fact that you are being badly treated because of your characteristic. But if you don't have a protected characteristic, there is no such recourse and there isn't actually any law against bullying. So just explore this kind of question a bit of we have multiple identities and even the people who have absolutely no protected characteristic can sometimes be victimized. Well, which it's very, very true. I mean, just really quickly, I would challenge you on people who don't have a protected characteristic. So we all have a protected characteristic. So you are protected as a man in the way that I am protected as a woman. The lawyer may not take the case on because they want to earn more money and they think it might win more because I'm a woman. But the law states that you cannot be discriminated again based on the basis of sex, right? Similarly, if you're old, you are protected against age discrimination. And if you're young, you're protected against age discrimination. The way the law is written, it protects anyone within that characteristics and we sit on different ends of the spectrum, if you will, but you are protected. There's only one protected characteristic that only applies to women, which is actually the protection just after birth. So the rest of them are universal, if you will. The difference is, and the reason they exist, is we have data that proves that if you're in one of these groups and at one end of the spectrum, the probability of discrimination has been proven and the case has been proven. But to your point, Diversity is so much more than that. It is so much more than that. And we are all unique human beings and individuals. And I think when we, a good focus on inclusion and diversity recognizes those protected characteristics and the probability of discrimination for the truth that is there in the data, but at the same time, it doesn't throw away the other stuff. It doesn't throw away the fact that you, Matthew, were bullied at work, right? And it should support you through that in the process. And I think it is possible to do that. And I think it is a good approach to do that. The bit about privilege is we see privilege as an accusation. And I think privilege feels like an accusation in particular when people put the word white in front of it. But actually, all privilege is, is the absence of some sort of impediment, right? So I don't have a disability, so I have the privilege of walking, running, jumping, seeing, hearing, and even from a mental health perspective, have never really had challenges with my mental health. I have no impediment physically or mentally. And similarly, I am white, right? I have no impediment. And generally speaking, my skin is positively welcomed in a way that, let's be honest, if you have black or brown skin, it isn't always positively welcomed, even today in 2023. Racism is still very real. It's not everywhere all the time, but it's still a very real possibility. Understanding this, that the person in front of you is a culmination of all of these things is really important. So I did not have financial privilege growing up. I grew up on a farm with no running water or electricity. I know what powdered milk tastes like. I have lived on a pot of beans for a week. I can remember just even the idea of having an out-of-date yogurt was a huge, huge treat. Now, it means that there's a bit of me that knows what it's like. Today, I'm lucky enough to have strong financial position and be in an, in, you know, a socially mobile, if you will. But I think seeing the totality of one's experience that non-universal privilege is a much more sophisticated, slightly more nuanced way to look at inclusion and diversity. And we need to get there. We need to get there quickly. Both the leaders that are supporting it and suggesting it's really important in organizations, but also the people who are creating diversity interventions. We can't be as crude and condemning 
as some of the early years were, where we got a lot of stuff wrong, because quite frankly, I think some of the pushback we're seeing was from poorly designed programs, not well thought out, not really looking at what the right long-term ambition should be or how we get there in one piece. Thanks, Susie. So, so just one last question, which is that as I was reading the book, there's just one very interesting moment in it when you recognize that, you know, it's not always the right time to do work on inclusion. You know, you talk about an organization that's got massive financial difficulties, needs to get through those before it can start to talk positively about inclusion. And you've talked also about private sector, public sector, third sector. It does seem to me, and this is what I've been making for years, is not a response to the particular kind of rather difficult kind of culture war issues that we talk about uh, a lot at the moment. I've always thought there's a danger in the third sector that third sector organizations think they've got to be perfect before they can try to address change in the world. And then they therefore spend quite really too much time looking at themselves and their kind of internal hygiene rather than getting on with making a difference. Is that something you've observed and how does one avoid that trap? I've observed it more in public sector, actually. Oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> in terms of, and that's more the political environment, it, that nobody wants to stand up and say, Mr. or Mrs. Minister, you know, that program we delivered, it messed up. And so we see failure as having messed up a big program as opposed to failure being we never even delivered the thing in the first place because we were too busy trying to make it perfect. So I see that quite significantly in the public sector. I mean, I, I think we are going to be testing and trying things. There is no perfect path to inclusion. There is no perfect path to the future. But I know we talk about culture wars and uh, a society that is divided. I actually, there's so much that binds us. I see so many good things in humanity and the people in it, even if they are of different characteristics, even if they are of different belief systems. And spending a bit of time in the stuff that binds us and then working through the issues or the challenges, frustrations we have with each other, frustrations with the agenda, or frustrations with the approach, I think it's okay to be frustrated with those things and work it through to the other side. So you asked me this question earlier around the divisiveness and, and the pushback. In all honesty, knowing that we are all vulnerable, that there's a shared vulnerability to some of the stuff that we're doing, and stepping a little bit closer to it rather than putting our defenses up. I don't think anyone has the answer, right? Hence why we're making mistakes at a rate of knots. <laughs> but the social problems we face aren't in isolation, right? The mental health crisis, if we call it a crisis, but I think it's quite significant, is not totally unrelated to the nature of work and the extreme volumes of work that we might see for many people or the ways in which our society is architected with a few people with a lot at the top and a lot more people with a lot less at the bottom, right? These things are interconnected. So going back to your question around how do we create space for more vulnerability? How do we show up more authentically? I think some of it is just deciding that we're going to get in a room and work through some of these things and allow space for more mistake making but with an intent and holding ourselves to account to get to a better place. Because too many people are going, well, the world's in real trouble. Whether it's sustainability or inclusion, you know, climate change or any of those things, it is in trouble. And we do face some pretty big problems. 
But I, we're incredibly intelligent human beings and we're incredibly resourceful. And we're changing and challenging things at all time, right? I see no reason why we couldn't fix these issues that we face today. Well, that's a great positive point on which to end our conversation. Mind the Inclusion Gap is published by Unbound. And if you want to buy a copy, I recommend that you do. You can find it easily enough by searching for it. Susie, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thank you, Matthew. My pleasure. Today's been a very focused day for me. It started out with me talking to NHS leaders about health inequalities. And then in the afternoon, I had a meeting about the work the CONFED, the organisation I run, is doing in that area, but also on EDI. And I have to say, as an old white guy with limited energy, this can sometimes feel quite demanding. But, you know, I found that the deeper I engage and the more willing I am to both listen and ask questions, hopefully thoughtful questions, the more energised I become. So perhaps like lots of things in life, helping to make the world more inclusive is something we get better at and something we get more out of the more we practice. Goodbye. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.